We plough and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with a golden grain and the veil with a fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat Hello listeners, I'm Sarah Bennett, host of the New People's History of Scotland podcast series brought to you by the team here at Conta. Welcome to this introductory episode to the podcast. During this series, I'll be in conversation with Chris Banbury, historian and author of A People's History of Scotland, as well as other historians and experts as we make our way together through the book and the history of people it examines. Let me briefly explain how the series is going to work. The podcast is based on the book of the same name, which you can buy from the Verso website, versobooks.com. We'd encourage you to read the book along with us to get the most out of the podcast, but you can also just choose to simply listen in. The episode will be based either on one chapter of the book or sometimes even just a section of a chapter. And we'll also have standalone episodes based on the Rebel Lives sections of the book, which focus on notable radical individuals from Scottish history. But don't worry, because I'll be explaining which chapters or sections of the book we'll be focusing on at the beginning of each episode. So thanks for choosing to embark on this historical journey with us, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Okay, Chris, good to be speaking to you. One question I've had when uh, reading through your book is, why is it a people's history of Scotland? What is special about this approach, and why did you write it when you did? I think, firstly, the suggestion came from Verso, and actually the idea came from two old friends and comrades of mine, Mike Davis, who studied in Edinburgh in the 1970s, and I knew him then, and Tarek Alley, who's a great supporter of Scottish independence. I think we wanted a history from below, a history of working class, but also popular struggle pre-working class. It was published in this early summer of 2014 as part of the build-up to the Scottish independence referendum. We felt, and I felt particular, that as Scotland was moving towards becoming a separate state, it needed to understand its own history in order to enter into this new world. And also to address some myths which were gaining a certain degree of credence inside the independence movement. For instance, the idea that Scotland has been oppressed by England. And I go at great lengths in the book to contrast Scotland with Ireland, which was a colony of Britain but also to pinpoint the fact that Scotland wasn't a junior partner in British Empire. It was in the lead of British Empire, partly because it was poorer and its upper classes poorer to India, Jamaica and elsewhere in order to make their fortune. In Spain, no Catalan has ever been prime minister of Spain. I mean, that's a remarkable thing. Catalonia was traditionally the centre of industry. You know, that hasn't applied to the Scottish ruling class, which is part of a British ruling class. We've had many Scottish prime ministers or prime ministers representing Scottish seats. So I think we had to challenge those myths and we had to challenge other myths that, for instance, the Jacobites were some sort of uh, historic uh, pre-precedence for an independence movement. I've gone to show that actually the majority of Scots, not just in the lowlands, but in the highlands, opposed Jacobitism in 1745, 1746. And essentially it was a reactionary movement trying to turn the clock back, trying to reverse capitalist relations in Britain. And I'll use the word Britain there, but also in alliance with Bourbon France at a time of international war. So it would have been a reactionary step forward. One of the things I point out is an independent Scotland will have an opportunity to break with that imperial past and not just in issuing a sort of full apology for the Irish famine like Tony Blair did, but seriously addressing what we did. 
and looking to maybe give reparations to countries like Jamaica, trying to help in different ways. Britain is never going to be able to do that because of its toxic legacy of empire, and it can't break from that toxic legacy. Scotland could do it. Independent Scotland could do it. And that's there in the book. One thing that I took away from it really strongly is having a far clearer idea of the unevenness within the British state between the different nations and how different that was for Scotland from Wales, for example, and things that seem common sense now that I've read the book. But actually, that doesn't come to light very easily. You do need to go into the detail and unpick it and go through the history. And I think that relationship between Scotland and England and Scotland's role as part of empire really comes through clearly. And I think that's a very important point to stress. So one question I think readers might have is around the starting point for the book. Because all nation states, to a greater or lesser extent, they do rely on their own mythology, projection back in time to justify their present existence. And Scotland is obviously no exception there. Because you start the book, correct me if I'm wrong, around 11,000 years ago, there would have been no concept of states at all at that time. So why did you go back that far? You're quite right. I start with hunter-gatherer people coming into Scotland at the end of the Ice Age. Now, it wasn't an easy life, but there was a quality between people and they had to cooperate. I think you're right about this. Scotland didn't exist at that time and didn't exist for many centuries. But actually, Scotland, like England in this respect, emerges as a kingdom with relatively delineated borders, which remain today, quite early on, certainly by the 11th century. If you look at it in terms of uh, what was happening in the feudal world, that was quite exceptional. You know, there were still kingdoms forming in this time. You already had something called Scotland, a kingdom of Scotland. Now, I want to be very careful about that. That doesn't mean that the vast majority of the people who were peasants gave allegiance to Scotland. In a feudal society, it is the feudal lord who counts. You give your allegiance to the feudal lord who controls what you do. Part of the book is to look at some of those national mythologies. Robert the Bruce was fighting for a crown. To be perfectly honest, I think you would take virtually any crown that was on offer. But the crown that you get was the crown of Scotland. But he had also served Edward I of England at different points and had land in England. So you can't just paint Robert the Bruce as being some sort of nationalist and some sort of, again, a precursor of the modern independence spirit. I think with William Wallace, it's more interesting. He was a much lower level feudal lord, a knight, the most basic actually, and clearly represented some popular reaction to English occupation. Occupation always reads the reaction because occupation means increased taxes, brutality, etc. And that is what was happening in Scotland under that occupation. But I think it's important to challenge some of these myths. Mary, Queen of Scots, is portrayed as a great tragedy. Again, the vast majority of Scots rejected her because of her Catholicism. We'll come on to that in a minute, perhaps. And because of her links to France. And she was literally chased out of the country. So to try and reinterpret her as some sort of great national hero, it doesn't accord with what the reality was. Going back to that, those early sort of hunter-settler communities, there's obviously the clearing of forestry that you talk about to make for arable land. Um, land, is, it's a, it comes up again throughout the book, and it's, it seems to me that it's got a particular interest to Scotland. It's a crucial interest to Scotland. As far as I'm aware, it has one of the most unequal distributions between private and public ownership in the whole of the Western world. Do you think this is something of particular importance to the shaping of Scotland over the centuries and something we'll be returning to throughout the book? I think it is something which is important because at the time of the Act of Union, 
the number of landholders was much smaller than, say, in England, much smaller. The agrarian revolution, which took place after Culloden in the second half of the 18th century, was carried through in large part by those landowners, the ex-aristocratic class. They were backed up by theoreticians of revolution, professors, lawyers, Kirk ministers, gave a theoretical understanding to the path forward. But it meant the existing aristocrats retained their wealth. This huge percentage of the land is in the hands of a relatively small number of people. And I think you're making a very important point. And it's something which has been challenged at different points. It was particularly challenged at the time of the Highland currencies, particularly later on, and then by the Crofters Wars. But I think, again, it's central to the idea of what Scotland do we want. Do we want to have radical land transformation? I think that's a very important argument. Why we need not just independence, but a change, a radical Scottish independence. Okay, let's move on then to another one of these key themes that I think we're going to be returning to. You've already mentioned it. It's about Scotland and religion. Throughout the book, we come across the Celtic Church, Calvinism, Presbyterianism, the Roman Catholic Church. And it seems to me, but perhaps I'm wrong, that out of the kingdoms of Britain, I'm talking England, Wales and Scotland, the role of religion seems to play a particularly influential role in the shaping of Scotland. Do you think that's fair to say? I think the modern Scottish identity, all the way through, really, from the mid-16th century to some point around the millennium, some point around the millennium, Scottish identity was defined in large part by two things, one by empire, one by Calvinism. The Edinburgh I grew up in, the only event ordinary people in Edinburgh would go to, in fact, middle-class people would go to, was the tattoo which is a celebration of Scottish militarism. But the other feature was Calvinism. And I remember when I was a kid, they used to come around and lock up the swings on a Saturday night so you couldn't uh, enjoy yourself on the Sabbath. Nothing was open by the the old tobacconist. It was really serious as that. And Calvinism became identified as defining some historic and progressive roots at the time of the Reformation, which involved a break. Although I have to say the Scottish nobility were not challenged by the Reformation. They embraced Calvinism, rather like they did in Poland, because they saw it as a way of restraining royal power. And that was always an ambition of an avaricious noble class. But it also becomes a way of differentiating itself from others. And the big other here were particularly not just the Highlanders, but the people in the northeast of Scotland, where there was a small Catholic minority, but a larger Episcopalian population who provided the ideology of Jacobitism. And Calvinism defines itself against that other. Then in the course of the 19th century, we see this influx, particularly the west of Scotland and Dundee, of Irish laborers fleeing what's happening in Ireland in the famine. And that leads to the introduction of sectarianism into Scotland. And I think it's very important that we talk, talk about sectarianism. And not in the way that the Scottish government tends to do, which is just to sort of blame it on football supporters, but to point out that Scotland's role in Ireland feeds into this. The very first Orange Lodge was founded in Ayrshire. Scotland's role in the colonisation of Ulster and the suppression of Irish republicanism plays a direct role in a Scottish ruling class having an interest in stirring up sectarian ideology, using that sectarianism for its own benefit. In the interwar period, we have the Church of Scotland going on a crusade against supposed Irish immigration, which isn't happening, by the way. But again, sectarianism was not just some popular thing. It comes from the top and was very much about divide and rule as ever. And it has helped shape modern Scotland for the worse. Today, Scottish identity is no longer based on Calvinism, militarism and empire. That's gone. 
Yeah. Uh, and there's something else here, which I think means that Scotland is, I, I, I don't overreg it. It's not to say there's no racism in Scotland, far from the case. But when I worked at the Islam channel, a TV station in London, it was quite interesting. Muslims would say to me, I come up to Glasgow or Edinburgh, I find it much more welcoming. I don't find Islamophobia the same as in England. It's incredible in Edinburgh, in the city centre, the central mosque runs a restaurant which is popular. You know, I don't know anywhere in England that's got something like that. That was interesting. And just to hear that stuff anecdotally, it made you sense that there is something a little bit different about Scotland that we could build in this to make a more progressive society. Great. Well, I've enjoyed listening to those answers. And we're going to be returning to these questions more times over the coming weeks, obviously. I think the next podcast will be on chapter two of your book. And it'll be William Wallace, Robert de Bruce and the Wars of Independence. So that'll be a meaty chapter to get stuck into. But thanks very much, Chris. Look forward to speaking to you about this further again in the next podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And you can get the book easily by going on the Verso, V-E-R-S-O website and ordering it directly from the publisher. I'd hold your horses because that will be uh, organising a discount for uh, viewers of these podcasts. You heard it here first. Get onto the Verso website. Look for A People's History of Scotland by Chris Banbury, hopefully with a 10% discount coming soon and hope you'll be following along with us. Until then, till the next podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that introductory episode to the podcast. If you did, then please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and make sure you share it across your social media sites so that your friends can also come and follow along with us. Everything we do at Conta is funded by you, our followers and supporters, so please do make a donation if you feel you can. Better still, if you're interested in reading and listening to what we've got to say across a whole range of issues, then consider becoming a Conta Patreon and gain access to exclusive patron-only content. Once again, thank you from the team here at Conta. Hello, hello, as to war we go to fight some foreign country That yesterday was our greatest friend, today's our enemy God bless our boys, the papers scream Praise them, the churchmen cry But oh, when the war is done and we're all home Who cares if we live or die? Hello, hello, till that happy day We're called to a heaven on high Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives Will be there on the day we die But have you seen, oh, what suffering hell on earth For the promise of a heaven above Oh, I not join the fight Till that one day we might See a heaven down here below See a heaven down here below